Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be in verse 19. Um, I'm excited about where we're at. If you've been with us, we've been making our way verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 7, 8, 9, uh, and really uh, first half of verse 10, he really makes the same argument over and over and over again about Jesus as our great high priest, Jesus as our perfect sacrifice, looking at how Jesus brings the new covenant. And each time he's just looking at it from a slightly different angle. And so now, after nine and a half chapters, looking at the greatness of Jesus and the new covenant that he establishes, so we can be forgiven of our sins. The author is now going to take all the theology, all the the Christology, all the the soteriology, uh, the doctrine of salvation that he has written, and he's going to press it down into the details of our everyday lives. Theology is not meant to just stay in our heads. Um, Have you known that person who is what we would call like a heady Christian? Have Have you known someone like that? Where, where they, they seem really smart, they can talk a lot about doctrine, usually do so quite eloquently. Um, oftentimes we're impressed by them because of the way they speak, because of what they know. Um, but what I have found out more times than not, the heady Christian, um, at best, is a very, very immature Christian. Because doctrine is never meant to simply remain in our heads. We have been saved that we would then live a new way. So all of our doctrine, all of our understanding and the teachings of who God is, what He has done for us through Christ Jesus, is not just meant to be this incredible knowledge that we're in awe of, but it's this knowledge that transforms us so we live a new life. In fact, the book of James talks about this all over. James chapter 2, verse 14, he will write, What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? Of course, he's saying no, it can't. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Someone will say, you have works, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. So, actually, when we preached through the book of James, we said real faith is tangible faith. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. As we've looked at who Christ is, what he has done for us, we're now going to be pressing it down into how we live every single moment. Now in our culture today, we're told that our faith must stay at home. We're told that when you come to work, you check your faith at the door. But I I want you to think, think about that statement for a moment. It's saying that what you believe is most important, the very thing that shapes how you see all of life, how you understand humanity, how you understand origins and creation, how you understand the purpose behind every single thing that exists, that somehow you need to put that aside when you exit your house. That's an impossibility. No one can do that. Only the one who does not truly believe what he professes is able to compartmentalize his faith. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, he was a, a theologian and an author in a book titled, How Should We Then Live? He wrote this, What people are in their thought world determines how they act. The results of their thought world flow through their think, throw, ah, 
flow through their fingers or from their tongues into the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel, and it is true of the dictator's sword. Schaefer's point is that what you believe is true must get worked out in your words and your actions. And so my goal today is that we, as a body of Christ, as the church, would know what it looks like to live out our Christian faith in everyday life. I want us to be able to answer the question, how do you live the Christian life? And we're not talking about being saved by our works, earning our salvation. What we are saying is that God saves us to live in a distinct way for his glory. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read chapter 19 to 25. So I want to invite you to stand. We stand when we read scripture as a means of reminding ourselves that this word, this book, 66 books, is inspired by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of our instruction, our correction, for our understanding, for our very teaching of how we live. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray. Father, give us wisdom today as we walk through your word. God, help us to have understanding of what it looks like to live as a Christian. You have saved us by your grace. Your son has come and died in our place, that he would absorb your wrath, that he would pay the penalty of our sins so that we would be a new people, a people who worship you, a people who image you, a people who do all things for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that through your word today and the power of your spirit, that you give us wisdom, you give us understanding, and that we would all walk out today understanding how we live the Christian life. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I want you to think, what would you say if someone walked up to you, how do you live the Christian life? This would be a, this would be a question if, if you have children and you're a Christian, they say, Mom, Dad, how do we live the Christian life? If someone at work knows that you're a Christian, say, well, what does that mean? How does that affect the way that you live? What would you say? What text would you go to? I would encourage you to go to this text. It's, it's, it's a good one. It fleshes it out. But before we answer that question, what, what, I, what I would advocate for and what i believe the text says is we need to make sure they understand the gospel first before we say how we live we must help them to understand why we live the way that we do what is the basis for our for our lifestyle so we first must remind them of the gospel and so here in our text before the author gives us three instructions for the Christian life. He gives two incredible blessings that are true for every Christian. And these blessings summarize 
the gospel. And so we're going to look at two blessings. The first one, what Christ has done for us. The second one, what Christ has become for us. So what Christ has done, who Christ has become. So we'll look at the first one, what what Christ has done for us. If you look at verse 19, we are told that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I just want you to think, what does that mean? We have confidence to enter the holy places. He's saying we have absolute, complete, total, unlimited access to God. All throughout chapter 7, 8, and 9, and the first half of chapter 10, we have seen that in the Old Testament, the priests, only one person, one day a year, could enter into the earthly holy of holies. The majority of Jews never entered the temple, much less ever entered the holy room where the Ark of the Covenant was. Access was very, very limited. But what we're told now is because of Jesus' death and resurrection, He has opened up not the earthly tabernacle, but the true heavenly tabernacle with the Holy of Holies for all believers Back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin separates us from God. And now, in Jesus Christ, by His death and resurrection, He has paid the penalty for our sins so we could be reconciled to God. By the blood of Jesus, we are forgiven. And we are told we now have total access to God at all times. Isn't that good news? The first thing we do, what has Christ done for us? He died on the cross that we could have unlimited access to God. It would be forgiven of our sins. Second, what has He done for us? If you look at verse 21, the author reminds us that Jesus is our great high priest. He says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. And over our our time in Hebrews, we've looked at what it means That Jesus is our high priest. And back in chapter 2, verse 18, we're told because Jesus is our high priest, he gives us grace when we are tempted. He helps us. In chapter 4, verse 16, we're told that Jesus gives mercy and grace when we are in need. Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father where he stands as our great high priest, ready to lavish His abundant grace and mercy upon us every single day so we can stand firm in our faith. So what has He done for us? He died on the cross so we could be forgiven and have complete access to God. What has He become for us? He's become our high priest that every single day He would give you and I grace to stand firm, to walk in in obedience to His Word, to live the life that He has called us to, to love others. Um, Before we keep going, I just want you to think about these opening verses. What do they say about the confidence that we have in our salvation? Just just think about that. Just read over this. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the new and living way, by this new covenant that Christ has opened for us through the curtain, that is His flesh. Meaning, we now enter into the holy places through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And He's now our high priest. All of this is meant to give you and I supreme confidence in our salvation. The author spent nine and a half chapters on the fact that Jesus Christ 
is the one who has satisfied the wrath of God so we could have total assurance in our salvation. And I know that there are some here, and I know that you know people who struggle with doubt in their walk. And we do at times. Because of sin, we wrestle with our assurance. We wrestle, am I really saved? The Satan loves to whisper lies in our hearts, in our minds, that we would think, maybe I'm not truly saved. Maybe Christ doesn't love me. Maybe his death and resurrection was enough for others, but maybe not enough for me. But we come here to Hebrews, and he gives us time and time again reasons why Christ's death and resurrection is fully sufficient to bring about salvation, that we would be members of the new covenant, that his word would be now written on our hearts and our minds, and that we would be God's people. And and according to chapter 10, verse 16, 17, and 18, he would remember our sins no more. So while you still might struggle with doubt, I just want to remind you and direct you to this passage because it gives us an abundance of theological ammunition to fight against doubt. So when you're wrestling with doubt, when you're wrestling with assurance, I just want to encourage you, come back to chapter 10. Read all the way, 1 through 21, and just think what Christ has done for you and who Christ is for you as our high priest. Um. So he reminds us of the gospel. So the first thing we do, before telling someone how do we live, we remind them, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is who he has become for us. And then we can give them an understanding of what it lives to Christian life. Now, as we look at this, and we're going to be looking at at three instructions. These instructions are not simply just morality like Jesus, Jesus is not giving us this word so we would have this and go, okay, so I just do number one, I do number two, and I do number three, and now I am a good person. Or this is how I earn my salvation. That's not what he's saying here. He's given us nine and a half chapters that we would understand that we, if we believed in Christ, we are saved. We have been created new in Christ, and now this is how a new saved people live does that make sense like he's not just giving us a checklist so don't approach these instructions as a checklist he's describing the new christian life that christ has purchased for us at his death and resurrection and he's describing the christian life that god gives us grace every single day to live so what we're about to read is only possible by the grace of god so if you're, if you're not a believer here, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, doing these things will not make you a Christian. But if you are a believer, then he's given these things to help you and I know what does it look like to live by faith? What does this new life look like? How is it that we live as light in this world? And so as we walk through these, um, these exhortations, you should feel instructed You should hopefully feel encouraged. You might possibly be corrected if you didn't understand one of these. And you may even be rebuked if you're living in opposition. So so any combination of those may happen. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these instructions as movements in the Christian life. And I think that will make sense as we go through. So there's three movements. Number one, we move towards God. Look at verse 22. We read that, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We draw near to God. So what does that mean? What does that mean to draw near? On chapter 4, verse 16, this is what he said. Because he's used the word draw near several times. And I'm only going to reference two of them here. He says in chapter 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Back in chapter 4, when we preached through that passage, we said it looks like he's emphasizing really the role of prayer at that time. When we're in need, when we're wrestling, we can pray to God, we can draw near to God, and he will give us grace at that moment. We also read this in chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. So here in chapter 6, drawing near seems to be the regular act of faith, including prayer, but really all of the Christian life. And so I believe that's how he's using the words draw near in chapter 10, that he's referring that this is a normal act of the Christian life. And if that's the case, then it seems to be very similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, just with a little bit different words. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As we draw near to God, everything that we're doing is an act of worship to God. To draw near is the invisible act of the soul in which we worship and please God. What that means, and think about this, what that means is that everything we do is meant to worship God. Everything we do. What we watch on TV, the books that we read, the hobbies that we partake in, the way we love our children, the way we love our spouse, the way we love our coworkers, it's all worship. When you cook, when you clean, it's worship. When you change diapers, when you mow the yard, when you pull weeds, when you're cleaning up after a mess, you're drawing near to God. Everything that we do is an act of faith towards God that we would worship Him. When you talk to the mailman, when you stand in line at Walmart or Safeway, wherever it is you go, all these are movements in which we worship God. We draw near to Him. The gospel transforms all the mundane moments of our life, which, let's be clear, that's most of them, right? Like, probably no one here did anything worthy of CNN this week. I mean, that's cool if you did. But most of our lives go unnoticed by the majority of people on this earth. Most people in Thurston County don't even know you. In the military, most people at Lewis McCord Base don't know you. Most of our our actions are quite mundane, but what we find here in the Gospels 
is that because of Jesus, he transforms them that they would be acts of worship to God and they please him and they honor him. So everything that we do, we now do before the presence of our God, which transforms changing diapers and cleaning up messes and mowing yards and fixing fences and doing things here at the church, whether it's ushering or setting up tables or pouring coffee, street cleaning, going to the soup kitchen, whatever it is that we do, it transforms everything into this amazing act of worship in which our God is glorified. Nothing is meaningless. You see how incredible that is? The Christian life doesn't just give purpose to one aspect of your life, but it gives purpose to every single thing that we do. And if we're going to do this, he gives us at least four things that we need to remember. We're just going to go through these kind of quick. Uh, Number one, that we come to God with a true heart. This means we are single-minded. We are devoted to God. Back in chapter 10, verse 16, we read that because of the new covenant, His law has been written on our hearts and our minds that everything we would do would be through the lens of the gospel. It would be to please Him. And we come in full assurance of faith. We don't walk in doubt. We know that we're saved. God has no wrath against us because Jesus has absorbed that wrath. And we know that Jesus now gives us grace every day to live the Christian life. We come with our hearts sprinkled clean. Referring very much to the the blood of Christ at the cross. You have been forgiven. Do you know that? Like As a Christian, you are forgiven. Not, not just that you will be forgiven, but you are forgiven, justified, sanctified. And God encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. You are perfected now. Doesn't mean we don't sin now, but according to the righteousness of God that is upon you, you are forgiven, saved, and righteous now. And we come with our bodies washed clean. I think he's referring to baptism here. Our baptism is a means of assurance. So not only has our hearts been sprinkled clean, but baptism is the outward sign of what has happened to us spiritually. And our baptism is a means of assurance. So if you doubt your salvation, one of the things you're called to do is go back and remember, I was baptized on this day as a declaration that I believe that my heart was sprinkled by the blood of Jesus and that my sins have been atoned for. I am saved. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. So that's the first movement. We draw near to God. The second one, we're unmoving in our hope for the gospel. In verse 23, we're told, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So what is the confession of our hope? Well, he's referring to an objective truth that we believe. Now, now this is different than how we typically use hope in our everyday life. The way we typically use it is... um, I'll illustrate this. So my, my two sons and I, we went camping the last couple days. Uh, they didn't have school Thursday and Friday. And so we, we went out and we went camping. And we had, and it rained the whole time, so it was awesome. So we, we stayed inside and we had board games and card games. And if you know much about my family, we love playing games. And Caleb is like a wizard when it comes to playing games. It's not very fun to play with him because he wins every single time. Uh, seriously, you give him like two times and then he dominates. 
every time after that. And so um, Ben and I, we had a hope going into this weekend that we would beat him. But that hope is not based upon any concrete truth. Like we're just wishing here. And, and we're praying that God would give grace on us during this weekend. We would not just be utterly destroyed every single time we played Caleb. That's typically how we use it. We hope this is going to happen. But in all honesty, there's no actual substance. There's nothing that we're clinging on to. There's no assurance to this hope. What the author of Hebrews is talking about is something completely different. He's talking about holding on fast to confession of our hope to the truth of the gospel. To the truth that not only Jesus died and then rose again three days later, but that he also will come again. There is a day in the future where he will return. And all who have believed in him, all who have partaken in this new covenant, who have believed in Christ, whose sins have been washed clean, will live with him forever in a new heavens and new earth. And so he says, we are unwavering in this hope. Now, this isn't the first time that he's used this word hope. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Throughout the letter of Hebrews, he's encouraging us to hold on to our hope. Our hope um, is confident in Christ. So he's saying, cling to it. Hold on to it. We're not to be wishy-washy people. We are not sailors who go out on a boat without an anchor. There is no true sailor who would ever go out on a boat without an anchor because the anchor is what holds you. The anchor is what keeps you safe. And as Christians, our anchor is Christ so that we would not be tossed back and forth by winds and waves of doctrines. As you listened to the video earlier by David Lawler, he spoke to the power gospel or the prosperity gospel. That seeps into churches all over America and certainly all over the world. And many, many people are taken captive by it. And when they realize that it's a false gospel, they want nothing to do with any gospel because they've been so turned off by this lie. But we, through God's Word and the power of the Spirit, understand the true hope that we have. And that one day Christ will return. But this world, this world that we live in, will continually bring temptations to us that we would trust in something other than Jesus. It wants to lure us away. We see this in chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. We're told that Demas is a disciple of, uh, of Christ. And yet, Paul writes about him. He says, Demas has deserted me for the love of the world. It looked like he was faithful for a while. It looked like he was a disciple. But in the end, he did not finish well. He walked away from the gospel. And in the first, John chap- first, first letter of John, chapter Two, we're told that there are desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and that there's the whole pride of life that tempts us every single day. And we can all be in here, and we can be tempted in same ways or in very, very different ways, but it's a very real battle that the enemy brings to us 
every single day that we would no longer trust in the sufficiency of Christ. We would think, yes, that God is good, but I need something else also. Christ isn't enough. And if the enemy has his way, eventually we'll turn our back fully to the gospel, thinking that, no, we should have all of the good things right now. And yet what we learn in God's word is that this world is finite. This world is temporary. And while Christ does give us great joy and great pleasure, He gives us unlimited joy and maximizes our pleasure in the new heavens and new world where we will live with Him for all of eternity when He returns. And so we can fight to have temporary, finite pleasure now and spend eternity in destruction or Christ says, take up your, Christ, your cross now. Live like me. And you might have pain now. You might suffer now. Oh, but I will return. And if you remember the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.10, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are reviled. Why? Because Christ will return and gather His church so that we will dwell with Him. That is our hope that we have. And so... Um, So how do we stand firm in our hope? I just want to give three ways. Three ways that we can practice every single day. Number one, rehearse the gospel. Every day, read God's word. There's nothing greater that you can do for yourself, for your family, for your church, for your coworkers, than be in this word, knowing it, reading it, being transformed by it every single day being reminded where our hope is, being reminded that the pleasures in this world can be good, but are never ultimate. And they never replace Christ. Study creeds like the Apostle Creed, like we read up here. Remind ourselves daily uh, by coming together like this, individually, corporately, being in God's Word, studying His Word. So that's number one, rehearse the Gospel. Number two, remember the character of God. That's specifically what He he calls us to do here. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. What's the basis of our unwavering hope? It's the immutable character of God. Immutable means unchangeable. He is faithful. Faithful, he is faithful yesterday, he's faithful today, he'll be faithful tomorrow. He never changes. And when you walk through God's word, you see that over and over again. He makes promises, he fulfills his promises. Numbers 23 19, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. What he has spoken will take place. Isn't that good news? Like, think about it. You pick up the newspaper. We don't pick up newspapers. Um, You pick up your phone. You read a newspaper clipping, whatever that's called, a podcast, blog. You read. There's there's no hope in there, and you're not sure on the substance of it. Right now, when we turn to news articles, they're all slanted, one side or the other. None of them ever contain all of the truth. Some of them, we're not even sure if they contain any truth. But every time we open this word, everything in it is true because our God is true. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is true. In fact, in Hebrews 13, 5, a little bit later in our book, God will say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why is it that you can 
persevere in your hope, it's not because of how strong you are. He's not saying trust in yourself. He's calling us to look back at the promises of God. Look what Christ has done for you, dying on the cross for you, that you'd be cleansed and forgiven. Look who Christ is for you, your high priest. He gives you grace every single day. So no matter what you're facing, He gives you grace to face it. Why? So we can stand firm. Not about our strength. It's about His strength that comes to us by His grace. Last one. Read church history. Um, I'm not going to give that one, but I'll just encourage you, read church history. Uh, We're not the first to face whatever it is that we're facing. We so often think that. In fact, you want to know how to handle a pandemic? Go back and look at how church history has handled pandemics and how they have stood firm. And how Christians have been bold with the gospel during those times and have lived in what oftentimes the world would call foolish but was an incredible means of being a light in the world for the advancement of the kingdom. Whatever you're facing, difficult in marriage, difficult in school, difficulty in marriage, difficulty at work, whatever we're facing, those who have gone before us have faced it. And as we read church history, we're reminded of the faithfulness of God, how He's been faithful to others that we'd also be encouraged by that today. So I want to encourage you, look at church history. So number one, we move towards God because all of life is worship. Number two, we're unmoving in our hope. Number three, we move towards others. Look at verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word stir up, It can actually be used positively or negatively. It means to spur one another on. It means basically he's saying incite a riot of good works among other people. I just want you to think about that. Incite a riot. Does your presence lead other people to do great works for the gospel? Just think through that. What kind of effect are we having on others? Paul says in Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. And I love this. It's, it's a little bit of my competitive side. Outdo one another in showing honor. We're continually looking at each other. Wow, look at what they did. Oh, wow, we can do that too. And we're, we're doing more and more, not necessarily to compete, but out of our love for Christ. And he says, consider. Now this is where we fall short a lot. And I think if we do this one word, We'll be able to do all of this. The word consider means to pay close attention to. I think if most of you were asked, hey, could you help here? You might help. Like if I asked you, like we're having lunch over here, we need some help setting up tables. I'm sure most of you would be willing to set some tables up if you were asked. But what we have here is not waiting to be asked, but we are intentionally going about Life, looking at how can I serve. We are looking at ways to serve. That means when we gather, we're not primarily gathering to be encouraged by one person behind a pulpit or by one or two other people in the church, but we're gathering 
to come and encourage others, which means whether you're here on a Sunday morning or you're going to table group or you're meeting a guy one-on-one for coffee, you're thinking, how can I encourage this person before I even get there? And when you're listening to them or when you're here or when you're in your table group, you're wrestling at that moment going, how do I serve? How do I serve? How do I love? What can I do to alleviate the burdens of these other people so they would see the love of Christ? It's not about you just being busy. It's not about you being the guy who fixes everything. But it's about being saved by Christ to now live like Christ that we would count others more significant than ourselves. Just as He humbly came and died for us, so now we take up our cross daily, dying to our own preferences that we would put the needs of other people before ourselves. And if we're going to do that, we must gather. We must gather here, and we must gather in smaller groups as well. When we come to verse 25, we realize, apparently, people have stopped gathering. It says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, why, had, why did they stop gathering? Well, remember the context of Hebrews. These people have been persecuted. They have suffered for the gospel. They're beginning to question their faith. They've stopped gathering for self-preservation. It was the safe thing to do. It was the wise thing to do according to the world. But we must realize we don't just gather for the fun of it. It is fun. And I hope that you have fun every time you come. Of our time of fellowship and our time underneath the Word and as we take communion, I pray that every time we leave here, our hearts have been filled with joy. Or every time we leave table group, I pray as we've been with other believers that we are, are excited about what God is doing in His body. But we gathered because being a Christian is to be a gathered people. Jesus died not for you alone, but for a body. For, a, for His bride. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. We're being built by the Spirit into a holy temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, you are that temple. We are the very temple of God. As we gather like this, we are the earthly dwelling place of God. Isn't that crazy? We are the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Each of you has been gifted by the Spirit for the purpose of using those gifts to build up the body. Not yourself, but to build others up. John chapter 17, verse 21. Our unity together testifies of the gospel. Do you realize that? You go look at any other group that gathers. They share no unity that we do. We have a unity in Christ that supersedes all of our preferences and everything else, and where we could divide on a million things, we're held together by the one true great sacrifice of Jesus, that because of him, we are brothers and sisters, and nothing can divide that. We grow in maturity through the love of one another. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. You cannot grow in your maturity apart from the body of believers. Do you know that? We bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 We prioritize the serving of the saints. We're told to serve everyone, but in Galatians 6.10 he says, especially the household of faith. Why? Because we are the light of the world. 
Because we come together as the church, as a body of believers. We are a picture of a different people, a different kingdom, a different humanity, one that's been saved by the blood of Christ that the world can only see when we gather. We encourage one another daily so we don't fall into sin. Hebrews 3.13. We spur one another on daily. And it's this last reason that I think is on the author's mind as he writes this. Because he says, we need to encourage one another all the more as the day is drawing near. What day is drawing near? The return of Christ. Why? Why, why do we need more encouragement? Why do we need to be together more? Because that day is coming near. Because when you read all throughout Scripture, as we approach that day, the world will grow increasingly hostile to the church the temptations will increase the persecutions will increase and so what are we going to need more of encouragement and grace because god gives grace to you through others and god gives grace to others through you we must be together like we do table groups not because we just love to get together and eat i mean that's like a huge part of it right but we get together because that's a means of spurring one another on. That's a means of saying, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going through hard things. How can we pray for you? How can we love you? Because as, as we're gathered like this, there's only four or five of us that come in front and actually talk. We can only know each other's needs so much here, which is why we try to get everyone into smaller groups like table groups where we truly get to know one another so we can practice these truths that we read about, so we can live out the gifts that we've been given to build one another up. Listen, being alone is dangerous. The lone sheep is the sheep that dies. Like, we know that. You don't even have to be a shepherd. When we're not gathering at the church, we think less of believers. Not like we think less, like they're not worthy, but we think less of them. They're not on our mind. We're not wrestling with how do I serve them. We think of our faith purely in individualized terms. That's not how we've been saved. In fact, the majority of Scripture speaks of salvation in corporate terms. It's not about you living your life and getting to the end of the race by yourself. It's about you living with the church, helping one another. So together we cross that finish line. We remove ourselves from meaningful relationships that are meant to encourage us when we're not gathering. And those are necessary for us to be able to make it to the end of the race. That is a means of grace in which God has given other people. Online church is about me. It's easy. It's not messy. It's church on my terms. I can listen however I want. No one knows if I'm there. Online church is not able to help you persevere in the faith. And online church is not church. So we will live stream this eventually we're in the process of getting cameras we will never live stream our whole services because we're not doing church replacement but i do think there is a benefit to having sermons in the teaching of god's word out on the internet but we will not live stream our services because we're not doing church replacements and i want to encourage you to encourage others. that We're not about church replacement online. There is no replacement for the gathering of the saints. Because we've been saved to be with one another. 
Because we need each other. We are a necessary means of grace in which God works through by His Spirit that we would build one another up. We can only do things, there are only things that we can do together that we can never do apart. So I want to encourage you, when you gather here, on your way here on a Sunday morning or to table group or whatever it is, come with the understanding, how am I going to serve today? How am I going to build up? And if you're coming right now and you're like, I'm not serving anywhere and you just need ideas, come see me. Come see Ozon. Come see one of the elders. We'll make sure you have lots of ideas to help. Because there's things you can do when you gather, but there's tons of things you can do outside the gathering as well. So how do we live the Christian life? Three words. And I hope they stood out to you as we worked our way through the text. Faith, hope, and love. We draw near in faith. We, we hold on to our hope without wavering, and we love the church. And when we do this, the world will take notice. The world will ask, how do you live in such a way? How do you have such joy in such small, mundane tasks? How do you have hope at all times? How do you love others so well? In essence, they'll be doing what 1 Peter 3.15 says, Where he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reasons for the hope that is in you. We tell people about who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what he has become for us. And we tell them about our faith, our hope, and our love. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to take communion here this morning. Our Father, we praise you. We praise you that you have given us your word, that we would not only know the gospel that you have given us, that we would understand what you have done for us and who you have become for us, but we would understand how do we live the Christian life? How is it that your spirit is working in us that we would show your love to others, that we would be a means of grace and encouragement to others? And Father, I pray, I pray that every single person here is a part of, Not only of the church as a large like this, but also a part of smaller gatherings like table groups. That we could be in relationships with others. That we would encourage others and that we'd be encouraged by others to love and to serve. That together we'd be ready for you when you return. God, we thank you for the gospel that you've given us. We thank you that you have saved us by your blood. And God, be with us now as we remember and as we celebrate what you have done for us as we partake of communion. In your name, Jesus, amen. The ushers-